Education is not a 50-50 arrangement. Your marriage isn't a 50-50 arrangement. It's all in all the time from both people. 50-50 is 100 divided by two people is a failing grade. In order to be successful, you have to commit completely to what it is you're doing. Firehouse Vigilance presents The Weekly Scrap, a podcast dedicated to the never-ending fight against complacency. Corley Moore, Firehouse Vigilance, Weekly Scrap, number 89. I'm very excited about tonight's guest. It is none other than Aaron Fields. He's a firefighter in the city of Seattle. He's the creator of Nozzle Ford. He is a renaissance man extraordinaire, honestly needs no introduction. So I'm very excited to say... Aaron Fields, it's my pleasure to have you on as the guest of Weekly Scrap number 89. Welcome, my brother. Uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate the invitation. and uh, I'm better than it really is. Pardon me. Checking, checking. Checking the audio there. We'll see if it holds. Okay, to everyone watching live, if you have questions for Aaron or myself, please do not hesitate to throw them up. In the comment section, uh, is there anything I missed in the intro? I kept the intro short and sweet for you, so go ahead. Anything I missed? No, that's 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 it. All right, I'm just going to ke- jump right into it. Uh, we already got people chiming in, so we're gonna have we're gonna have a lot of interaction today. So sure. Uh, the first thing I wanted to throw at you right out the get go was a quote that I heard from you, and I do not even know where I grabbed it from, but I want to lead off the show by asking you about it to elaborate on it and say whatever you want to say, which is you stated language is the only tool that every human being uses. So how's that impacted you as far as that philosophy? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, one of the things that I try not to do is just throw out trite, um, things and, and phrases and, and fall, you know, just into the kind of the status quo of what our industry typically propagates. So, what I'll, I'll start by saying is that my interest in language, as an adult looking back, um, it's it's interesting because I can trace it back to um, my neighbors in that when I was raised, I was raised in one of the, if well, according to the U.S. Census, the most diverse zip code in the United States for many years running. Okay. Um, you know, one thing that people make the mistake of is, the you know, in, in big cities where people kind of grouped together in their linguistic groups. Uh, my neighborhood was unique in that there was no dominant linguistic group. Uh, I worked in the firehouse that was right around the corner from where I uh, was raised. And when I was there, which is about, I, I moved up the hill to battalion headquarters about four years ago, but uh, there were 63 distinct languages within three minutes of my firehouse. And that doesn't include dialects and uh, you know, d- different versions of one another. It's They were distinctly different languages. And I guess growing up, you know, when I'd go to my Japanese neighbor's house, whose mom only spoke Japanese, or I'd go to my Tongan neighbor's house or my Vietnamese neighbor's house, um, when I'd go for a birthday party, happy birthday would be sung in all different languages. The <laughs> right. meaning was the same. And for me, that was really cool, and I always felt like, boy, if you can just talk a little bit of another language, it lets you into a whole other worldview. So, this go, you know, my interest in languages is is 
is long rooted. And then, you know, I wasn't a great student. Um, it would be, be arguably easier to say I was a bad student. Uh, you know, went to trade school, uh, got myself into college a few years later. And, and when I went to college, um, I think this is a, a good example is that I didn't go to college to get a job. That's not the point of a liberal art education. The point of a liberal art education is to expose you to many, many different worldviews, which means whenever you go, you go with a broader spectrum of experience to pull upon, you know. Um, And so uh, what ended up happening was, as I studied uh, two two different, I have a double major, um, almost a triple, and one of the focuses was linguistics. And as I started to learn the backdrop of what language does to the brain, how um, it leads to codification of the natural world, it, it leads, you know, without the written language, there, I mean, you can look at human history and how we developed. There was tens of thousands of years of nothing, of basically people doing the exact same things. Right. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's off to the races. And that is echoed by the technological revolution of today, the ability to communicate. And the written language translates into the spoken language, you know, and just that ability to share information. So when I came into the fire service, I there was an example that struck me. So I was in the academy. I met a, a recruit and, a, 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 excuse me, a volunteer, and then shortly after got hired. And I went through the volunteer training. And then I went through the uh, state, Washington State training. And I can remember two things that stuck out from this is one of the guys up there um, was teaching. And I this was 2000, 2001, something like that. And I went up to him because it was a com- we were midway through the academy. And they had been showing me this methodology of approach, which, you know, is... Well, you tell me what you would call it. I'm advancing down a hallway. I do a short burst off the ceiling, shut down, and move forward. What is that called to you? I mean, uh, to me, it sounds like a training scar left over from don't put out the pallet fire. Correct. But what would you write? Absolutely. (laughs) It sounds bad. That's what it sounds. No. But, you know, the idea was don't disrupt the thermal balance in a short burst of water and Conventionally, in most of North America, that traditionally has been called penciling. Pencil, pencil, pencil. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah. And so I, I had learned that approach in my volunteer place as penciling. And I walk up to this instructor, an instructor, who you're supposed to be able to ask questions. But he was doing... There was an observer there in that day, or a series of observers that were from different fire departments that were having their training officers validate the state academy and whether they wanted to send their people and all this. So, you know, but he's supposedly in, in an instructor role. So I walk up to him because I have a question. Sure. And he had never he had never defined what that attack was, but I had learned it as a pencil. Right. So I walk up to him and I'm like, uh, sir, I have a question. He's like, go ahead. And I said, regarding penciling. And he's like, what? 
And I'm like, you know, when we go in and we make that short burst, the pencil, and he stops me and he dresses me down. Oof. And one, he never defined it, uh, what he was calling it. And our industry calls it penciling. But he didn't like that term. And he wanted to make a point in front of this guy that he was trying to impress that this wasn't that and that it was somehow different because they named it something different. Right. Right. But he never told me what the name was. And he dressed me down. And, you know, I was a little bit older and I had just come back from overseas and I had a probably one of my ears was still a little swollen up. And I'm thinking, dude, if we weren't worried about me, if I wasn't worried about me losing my job, if anyone talked, I'm a full grown adult. Right. You talk to me like that on the street. You're we're going to have a conversation. Yeah. That, yeah it's, it's gonna, <laughs> We're going to have a conversation that may involve hugging eventually. Right, right. right. And, and one of us going to sleep. So right. um, it was just, it was that double whammy of like, oh, I see. I'm your fodder. I'm the guy that you're going to sacrifice to make a point to impress this person. You've never defined what it is. And I had journeyed or the equivalent of journeyed in a trade before I ever went to college. So I knew that my first three years of training in my trade was is to learn the jargon so that I could go anywhere in North America and talk to somebody else that did what I did, and we could use those code words that have one distinct meaning, meaning. not right. And so that was the first time I was like, man, this is, this is nonsense. He's never defined it, and I said what most of us say it is, and I got dressed down because he didn't like the words. Sure. No, absolutely. And so it was a double whammy. And, and he wanted to feather that, that ego. He wanted to feather that, yeah. Yeah, wow. it, it was, yeah, or he wanted to feather the ego. And the only type of person that really needs to do that is a person that lacks one to begin with. It's compensation. Confident people don't need to do that. Right on. Right? right it's, on. it's compensation. And and uh, it's bad behavior. And as adults, I think it's fair assumption and expectation that adults behave like adults and are accountable for their behavior. And anyway, it was, it was a double, it was kind of a double negative pill. And, you know, I, I'd been, I'd worked in academia a little bit. I'd worked in the trades and now I'm in the fire service and I'm like, well, we say we're a trade. We're clearly not because the one of the defining features of a trade is that you have a jargon. And a jargon is a language that's technically specific, designed for a specific pastime or occupation. Right. We have them in everything else. And there's always going to be subtle variation, but not sure. so vast. So then my career went on, and, and I ate some humble pie and uh, on calls and early, which I think is healthy. Um, if we don't eat enough humble pie, we become diabetic. Nice. <laughs> you know, and... I ate, uh, I ate some humble pie pretty early. And so I started, I'd had some really good mentors that had given me the threads that led to the trail that I needed to go down. And so I started reading all of these other sources and going and putting myself in these classes to listen and, and learn this, these skill sets. And what I recognized was the major missing piece is we don't have a jargon. 
And lack to the jar. point that lack of jargon, most fire departments don't have a consensus with what they call the stages of fire. Right? For some people, an oxygen starved, superheated, gas rich environment that ingests some air and lights off is called a backdraft. Backdraft, right. Unless you're reading other sources that call it a flashover. Flashover. <laughs> no, you're, yeah. And a flashover in the first document, the flashover in the first document is a heat driven event. It has nothing to do with oxygen. Or it does, but it's not defined that way. Right, right. So now you have somebody walking into a room that's new and learned that a full, a, fla- a backdraft was oxygen starved, superheated, gas rich environment. And now you have people sitting around the greenery table talking about the new the studies that have recently come out that don't prove anything new. They just redefine some things and define some things with a little more clarity. But they refer to the same physical event as a flashover. And so now you have someone walking in the room who's new, and because they're new, uh, they're probably not as comfortable asking questions because they've never been, it's never been modeled that it's acceptable. Right. I remember, yeah, absolutely. I remember a guy telling me point blank, Hey, you're not in the Academy. Uh, so you could, you welcome to the, your first shift or second shift. You could ask me anything you see. And if you see something tonight, that's out of ordinary. I want you to tell me, cause this is life and death. Okay. So I have a question and I go to ask him a question and it was literally shut up. I'll tell you everything you need to know. <laughs> okay. So now not only can I not ask a question, but I'm probably not going to say, hey, the back wall's right. auto-igniting. You know? Disconnect, <laughs> exactly. right. Exactly. We disengage. So, and I, and, I, and I went through the course, and there's other things you're going to ask me. You know, you get, kind of gave me a quick preview, and there's some other stuff that leads back to this. But as I went through my career, I just recognized that the major difference in understanding is simply that we're not speaking the same language. And if we spoke the same language, we could cut out well what I meant was because it would be defined. Right. As, you know, so that to me is really important. And in, in the latter half of my career, the latter third of my career, whatever's left, it's something that I've progressively been more focused on is like to the point where it used to be when I first got asked to teach something, I was about the why the when and the how. Right. And I would get asked, what would I, what should you change first? What would you change first? And, and I would always approach this question with a technical lead. Well, you could, if you add this, because it's very close to something you already do, you get buy-in, now you add this, now you add this, now you add this. Probably seven years ago, we changed. Okay. And I realized that what I, I wanted, I wanted to try it. It was an experiment. And so now what I do is I tell people, if you want to have an impact on your fire department, before you dive off into technical and tactical discourse, you need to come up with how you're going to talk. And so what I do is I have a series of questions that I'll send people that they can then do send out to their fire department and they can figure out how many different versions of these languages do we have and then as a consensus, we can come together and create our own dictionary. Within their own department. And within their own agency. Because wow. at a national level, I mean, this is the unfortunate thing, is at a national level, there is no profit 
in every book manufacturer using the same language. Right. 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 So not to say that they wouldn't do it. And there's not to say that there's not good people that work for those book companies. But it, if, if we don't recognize, like, and I get accosted sometimes by gear manufacturers, I'm like, no, I'm not calling you bad people. I'm just understand my relationship with manufacturers of equipment is based on profit. And if you understand that, then it absolves you of any emotional content and you can just be objective. And so what I tell people to do is don't worry about the big picture. Don't worry about the national level. Worry about your your station, your crews, your, your department, and build out. And once we've decided these are the terms that we're going to use, now we – and. And what I recommend is people even go into the point of, if they have the time and the diligence, is to go into the point of, we are going to call this event a flashover. A flashover is when a late stage fire that is missing one leg of the fire triangle gets it, it balances out, and it's a moment in time in where a late stage fire develops into fully involved. It can be and has been referred to as smoke explosion, backdraft, and flashover. They're all oh, the same yeah. phenomenon, just different causes, but the same event is occurring, right? So things like that. What is an indirect attack? There's four different working definitions across the country. My fire department has three. Wow. So if you and for so some of these things, we've actually looking at it from a linguistic point of view. I realize that I can annotate four different definitions of indirect attack. But if you have a definition that you're set in on, and I have a definition I'm set in on, every time we say it, we have to translate, oh, what he means is his, we've decided that it's your version. So every time we say indirect, I have to translate mine into yours. Right. So there are certain terms that it is better to move away from those industry accepted because there's too much baggage because they've been used in three or four different ways. No, absolutely. Right? Yeah, so you absolutely. Create, so we moved away. So an indirect for us traditionally has been into the walls and ceiling and then directly onto the seat of the right, fire. Right. So that's a modern day combination attack. But indirect to some of my mentors was an exterior water application a la Lloyd Lehman in 1951. Right, Lehman, yeah. And, and some people's were a Royler and Nelson, the pencil is considered an indirect attack. And some people, when you're banking it off the ceiling or walls to get it around or over something. An obstacle, right. That's an indirect attack. So no, yeah, you it. got four. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what we've done is, it, yeah, what we've done is realize that this luggage is so ingrained and our language and our industry is divided up by generation and geography um, to the point that we have to start small and create our own internal jargon. And then we can dive into these tactical things. And at certain terms, if 70% of your fire department says X for a particular event, right, and there's 15% that say Y and 5% that say A, well, so many say X, this is what we're going with. This right. is the definition. When we say this, this is what it means. But when you're more evenly split and the language is entrenched, um, 
it's sometimes better to say, you know, we're going to move away from this terms to avoid confusion. And we're going to call this into the walls and ceiling and then directly onto the sea. A high to low fire attack. A direct is a low. And a defensive fire attack is from outside the compartment or the box. And a bank shot is when you're banking it up and over. So we went to descriptive terms. And what that does is it allows everyone to be right. And because... All you got to do is take your version of indirect and stick it into whichever one makes sense, right? right. And, high to low. And high low, right? Yeah. And so a modern day combination attack. But, uh, and we have found that with that and using your language like that as a tool helps define the circumstances. And when we define the circumstances and we have a common language and then we look back at our events, we can actually begin to dissect what's going on. Right. And we can get to the point that most most fire departments have this, could develop this thing that we advocate, which is called the Keystone. Keystone evolution is an evolution that has a that everyone in the fire department should know how to deal with because it's common. For most fire departments, it's about four single family, one or two industrial, one or two or industrial commercial one or two uh, multifamily. So you could have a recipe of five or six or seven keystone evolutions that could be broken down into tiny little pieces so you could practice those things that you need to work on. You could attempt new approaches to the house against something that's already quantified. So you, it's, you know, I don't know, it might be like running your football team's two-minute offense against a five, the nickel package. So I got a new idea that I want to try a new right, play. Right. They don't just go, well, put it on the whiteboard. Yeah, that's great. Let's run it. They actually practice it. And they right. practice against things they know they're going to see. The nickel, so the dime, yeah. coding and creating this language, you not only create the dictionary of tactics, technique, and events, you also, it starts to have this subtle classification in your mind about those things that you're dealing with. And what that means is you start to build an intrinsic and intuitive probability versus possibility. What are we likely versus what we are? The way the fire service talks about it, it's always what if. Well, yeah, that might work, but what if? What What if what? What What if if one time I was holding a rod and got a nozzle and got shocked by a lightning simultaneous, we had a tsunami? I mean, that's a possibility. It's highly unlikely, right? So... By adding this language to it, it begins to code our world. And by coding and classifying our world, we start to be able to eliminate those variables that aren't real because we have a way to talk about it. So when someone says, well, what if? And I'm like, when did that happen? Right. When has that happened? And because we have a way to discuss it and a way to dissect it and a way to analyze it, it takes away the what ifs and it actually helps remove chaos and stress well because the rules are defined right right what not even to mention the periphery uh the the what do you call it the side effect of you're not arguing over what stuff means at that point you're not wasting your energy yeah yeah tomato yeah tomato Tomato. right tomato tomato potato you know like and and it's and let's just call it off and that's what happens that song is what happens in the fire service two guys 
end up in the beanery screaming at each other, telling each other that they're dummies. And then when they're done talking to each other, which isn't really talking because they can't use their language right. very well, can't use it like a tool. They're using it like a bludgeon. And, and, and who's right and about now what happens is and they're frustrated because they can't express themselves. So now they walk away and they talk shit about the other guy <laughs> in front of everybody. You know, yes. now we have like. I haven't liked you for 20 years, and I find out that you're actually a really good guy. We got off on the wrong foot. That other part of it, right, which is trust. Trust is built through combined mutual effort. Work. Mm. Hold on, I got to write that down. Yeah, and language, the ability to talk. When people have come to me and brought up, a point that they have issue with very rarely are we actually in opposition once we have the ability to chat and there was and chat me not tell them that they're wrong me explain how what i'm saying is actually very similar usually at least and if not if it's not similar i don't make it up i lead them i have a conversation about what they should do and where they should go to fill out their information so that they can come to another conclusion right and so we talk about this and usually in the in the nozzle forward we talk about the language and the jargon and we create one uh we create one with regards to the fire conditions and the fire attack methods we create one on hose movement and and you know are being able to articulate it so the language is a big part of what we do but the other thing that I think is important about language as a tool is once you've had a dinner with somebody, it's hard to fight with them. <laughs> and the reason people get frustrated in conversations often, most often, is because they feel like they're not heard and not understood. No. That, yeah, so that's when we have – that's the heart of it. And – I can, you and I, you know, who knows, but I've had people that I know that I don't agree with on certain things, but because we can discuss them, I at least respect the fact that they've thought of them. I disagree, but I respect the fact that they're engaged. Absolutely. Um, and I can have respect for that. And I think that example in the United States today. <laughs> yeah. Nothing is separate. The connection between what's going on in the fire service and what's going on in society is the exact same thing because it's made up of the same people. Right. We articulate our trade as something other than it really is very frequently. The, the, the kind of, the, you know, there's a lot of what I like to call it, it's the night to the round table. We view and think of ourselves, our self-identity is wrapped up in being like a knight of the round table, I'm a noble servant, when in fact we're more like plumbers. Right on. We carry heavy stuff and we move water around, and we're supposed to do it because it's in our description. Absolutely. And we're good you know? at tearing and stuff so, up. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, anyway, I, I just I think that language is a, um, language is a misemphasized skill. Classical, like classical, I mean, like in Rome, they taught language, grammar, mathematics, and rhetoric. 
And rhetoric wasn't the semantical implication we have now. It wasn't fighting and arguing. It was conversation, the ability to articulate yourself in a manner that is coherent and appropriate and to have logical you know, conversations and discussions that are logically based rather than emotionally based. No, I, like- I think... I think that uh, yeah, I think that what we've got going on in society is that we've we have forgotten that efficient and effective are two different things. Efficient is quick, cheap, and short, and effective is permanent and long. And we need to remind people that you can't have real conversations in twenty minutes. And on Facebook, the only way to have real conversations is to re-emphasize the fact that as human beings. Every societal advance has come because of the ability of people to communicate effectively and efficiently. And I have a hard time. I mean, you made it. You alluded to it. I'm not on the social media. The reason is, is it's not conversations. Absolutely. It's 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 and it's you know all you got to do is yell loud enough and get people whether you're they're right or wrong right and and people say things in those formats that are. That they would never say in your face. And for me personally, you know, I'm 50 and uh, I was raised in a manner that in a way that manners were the priority, like how you won and lost, how you interacted with people, manners like were a super appropriate and you you it was prized. Good manners were prized and. And so when I see senior firefighters uh, throwing hissy fits because a new firefighter has dared to ask them a ask question. Ask them something, yes. Right. That's a mark of trust. It was a mark of trust that they came to you. I think that, it, well, that was until you beat him down. Right. Like, I will never go back to that guy that I interacted with 21 years ago. And we've had interactions since then, and it's all good. But I will never right. compare because I don't trust that he's actually got my back. Right. Right. He's not. He's not really looking at. He's. He's trying to make a point for himself, not for us. And I, that's subtle difference. But um, also, I I can hold a grudge. Oh, we all can. Know? Oh yeah. Hey, believe me. <laughs> you know. And and what you and and in my mind, what you get away with. What you do when you can get away with it is the mark of who you are. Yes. So he had me by the short hairs. So he could do and say whatever he, he freaking wanted to. He would never do that now. In fact, it's been the opposite when we've had. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, no, not, not acceptable. And manners are so important. And we, for some reason, have conf- in modern American culture, we've forgotten that even when you're right, you have to be mannered, right? Yes. Somehow we've gotten to where people's self-righteousness, uh, their perception of their self-righteousness allows them to behave in manner that is, is uh, inappropriate <laughs> and, and is counterproductive. Well, if it, so and it's something. This is a big question, right? Because it it's, it covers not only our technical aspect, but it also covers our cultural aspect, and the equally of, of important. 
All right, I'm going to jump on it here because I've you've officially broken the scrap because I think there's been about 200 comments and I've read none of them. So okay, we got a ton of hey, Aaron, how's it going? Love it. It's going to be awesome. All that kind of stuff. I'm not even going to try and touch them all. So I'm just going to bypass them. I've got questions to throw at you. So I'm going to try and find a good question to throw at you here. So I don't know where it's sure. going to come from. It could be left field. It could be not. There's been a lot of discussion going That's okay. on. A lot of discussion going on in the comments. Uh, Dirk Janiak said, I'd love to have him breaking down his teaching methodology and put it into layman's terms. That's a big part of what we're going to discuss today. So I won't even touch that question yet because that's that's yep. that's a big part of what I want to say. Um, I've got some stuff saying we need hey, the Dirk, book. Hey, Dirk, how's it going? We need the book of Aaron. That's from Ryan Pennington. Okay. And there's a lot of likes for that one. <laughs> and they said, I thought he was working on that. And they said, let's hope so. The Nozzle Ford book, take my money now. So um, I hope that's a thing. Uh, where is the questions here? I'm scrolling, uh, guys. You have it a- is it is a thing. Um, we've we've been through. So we have a, a small, if you, but a small technical manual and 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 some stuff that we wrote years ago. That's that's not bad, but it's not great. And it's it's you know we found better ways to explain things and and you know working on the teaching model, which I'm constantly doing. The manual has been outlined into three or four different shapes, and we've been saying for two years or three years it'll be done in six months. And, it, and I do. <laughs> I've got two guys helping me that work on my cadre; they're phenomenal. But there's there's a part of the process that you know I could rush in, but I want it to be right. And, and this is, I mean, I've never said this publicly, so this is. This is the first time I've ever said this. One of the things that I fear the most is being misquoted. I, I, I don't like being misquoted because that leads people to make assumptions of who and what it is we do and I am. But the other part of that is when you write a manual, you, and I think more people should pay attention to this, when you write a manual, you are locking yourself into a moment in time. And so when you write it, you have to write it in such a way that the semantical implications of what you're trying to get across don't dissipate as the language continues to change. Right? Absolutely. And that, uh, and that you write it in such a way that it's an outline format, more or less, you know, so that people can grow with it including yourself and we have finally decided upon one single format we know what program we're going to use uh we've we've i i the the guys that are working with me have done everything that they can do we're actually i am putting my fingers onto the keyboard and we're editing it down so it is coming the technical manual is coming but i mean i and i appreciate the fact that people are interested in it uh but the most important thing is that it be offered in a way and done in a way that is good right i i don't want to do something that six months later or two years later or five years later i'm like "Mm, i wish so not only does i do i have to write it with this idea of, of the inevitable changing but i also have to write it with the idea that i have to come up with a way that's works to make the edits as things change uh you know so because it'll never be done really right and and so 
I just I, I just appreciate people's patience, and it, it will happen. I'm really hoping it happens before the end of the year. Nice. Uh, and as far as money thing goes, I have made this another component of it is I've, I've had to think a lot about how this will work. Because as it is right now, if anyone that gives me their time and takes a class, they can come back to any class that we do forever without ever re-signing. They come back in what we call an audit spot. And this is because people want to come back and they want to refresh their skills. They want Maybe they're doing the teaching in their own fire department. They want an update. And so with our manuals, those two are free once you've taken the class. So the the twist this time versus the first time, and that will continue. That is that is something that morally I am locked in on, and people that know me well know that no amount of exterior pressure will ever make me choose against my morals. I do what I morally am okay with, right on. and I'm not saying other people are doing it wrong. I'm just saying for me, the investment in time, and that's why our rates are so low comparatively, is because people are giving us their time. We found something that's fair and equitable, and they're giving me their time. Right. That is the only asset that they have that they can't replace. So I, the only thing that I can do is completely and permanently give them mine. And so... We have a plan in place as the difference between this book and the first one that we did, the first training document that we did was we've, we've got people that have implemented, like many, many places have wholesale implemented, and they have internal trainers that are connected to the program, but they're going to be bringing people in that aren't connected to the program. And so we have to come up with a way that once you're approved, because we know you've got someone can actually teach the skill set in your agency, if your agency wants to send the people to the program, fine, the agreements are all the same. And if not, then probably if they're like some, well, there's one place that pops to mind that just came up that they've got eight people that are more than qualified to teach the skills. And those people will forever have access to all of the data and all the classes that they want. But if the fire department wants to buy 10 of these manuals, then the cost will be the same as sending someone to a class. Right, right. Because that seems fair. No, no, and, and, and what I won't, and, and I won't sell them to people that don't have someone that physically can lead the charge. And what you're thinking is, that's no kind of marketing plan. No, it's the yeah. point is, is, is <laughs> yes, you're right. Yeah, business class schools would be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, my job. No, dude, dude, it's amazing. It's amazing because what you're aiming for basically, and Greg Redmond actually chimed in and said, perfection can be a, a blessing and a curse. So you're basically want to make it, you're, you're wanting to make it perfect before it hits out there. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of what I heard. And, uh, and per- perfect for its moment. But right. more importantly, flexible enough to be changed and modified and grow as the skill set grows and the and the interpretations grow. So I know I, yeah, I he's right. I know exactly what he means. Although I have no aspiration to be perfect, I want to be robust. 
Right. No, no, I get it. And, and, and again, we're talking language here with the, uh, yeah, yeah, totally. Absolutely. Um, and the other part is, is like you said, it, it's not just, and I'm, I'm using, uh, the words loosely here, but perfect in perpetuity, you know, and that is such, yes. that is <laughs> such a, yeah. a tough, yeah. uh, target to hit. Um, okay. I'm going to talk to the audience real quick, which is guys, I've never had this happen before. There's been so many comments that they're gone now. I'm sure I can see them on the recording, but I can't find them right now. So if you had a question, I'm sorry, I'm going to get right into the meat. I mean, believe it or not, what we've talked about for the last 40 minutes was the introductory question. So for that being said, I'm going to get right into the meat of this, which is, I really want to deep dive into your teaching methodology, where it came from, how you developed it, basically your, uh, your methodology. So, and that's yeah. a lot of the questions you guys have been asking have been based on that. So I'm hoping I'm hitting that mark by yeah. moving right to that point. So go ahead, Aaron, kick it off wherever you want to go with it. So, um, my experience, I've got about 25 years or so in skill acquisition, specifically for psychomotor skills. So, and there is a difference between cognitive skills and psychomotor, and most of that difference is, has to do with its period of application, its period of inter- the reflex time of interpreting, acting, and then the biology of acute stress. So, the uh, I played a couple of sports, uh, one team sport and one individual sport. And in doing that, I ended up with the individual sport overseas. And I don't want to, I mean, you know, this is that whole misquoted thing. I don't want people to take this wrong. I was competing with people that were world class. I was not. I am not a world-class athlete. Uh, by the time I left, I was technically very, very good, but I was not in that top tier 5% of humanity. So more importantly than the wins were the vast number of losses. And having coaches in a sport that in this country is largely done in garages and the basement of gyms, by guys that may or may not have really played the sport at a very high level. Um, some of them did, some of them didn't, uh, and they're not professional. So they come in after work and do exactly what was done to them. And they use the same sayings and they use the same drills and they, they have a more of a, the only way to say this is a more of a cookie cutter approach to training. So, when I went overseas and was in the first practice and I stood up and the coach looks at me and says, don't stand up that way. You stand up this way. And I was like, okay, why? And he's like, because if you stand up the way you just did, you did it. So it's your instinct. Your feet are too close. You'll be, you need to stand up like this. So you're immediately in a ready position. Now, let me interrupt you. Cause I want to, I want to give context to everybody there. The sport was, uh, my main grappling sport has been uh, judo, followed by jiu-jitsu. And I started jiu-jitsu in 91, started judo in 88. And I was also have done, because I was in the Eastern Bloc, a fair amount of Russian samba. Okay, um, okay. Which is a Russian version. And then I cross-trained in college 
with a whole bunch of uh, national level freestyle and folk style, well, freestyle guys. They were, they were, okay, so, sorry. Didn't want to interrupt, but I wanted context for yep. what you're talking about on the stance and things. So go ahead. Right. So anyway, so basically my main sport involves hugging. And you're either huggering with a jacket on or no jacket on, sure. depending on, right? So, um, and I learned, like, I went through these 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 practices, and every night it's always been something that I learned from my my mom and my dad, which is notes. Take notes. You may not keep the notes, but take notes because when you take them, you make them in your mind. When you just do it and recall it. It's a question of perspective. You write things down. It's a question. It's a little least more on the objective scale. So I would take all these notes. And when I was leaving, I went to the coaches and I said, what just happened? (laughs) Like I went from in my country, good on a regional level to I just threw a guy that won bronze in the 96 Olympics. Right. And and he beat me, you know, 20 or 19 out of 20 times. But I choked him real good a couple of times because I, <laughs> I threw him one time really cleanly, right? out. There was no hope of this just a few short months ago. And they were like, well, what we do is, and they went into a, a, a chat about their teaching methodology, and they went through a lot of their bibliography. And so when I came home, what I immediately did was I was still in, I was in college, so I, I started a, cr- a training club on my university uh, in addition to the judo team. And uh, we would just practice these drills that these guys had me do. But then I started reading the bibliography, and I started understanding why the drills were there and when they used them and when they didn't use them. And it created the uh, the language and the, the understanding of how people acquire things. So I was able to start really coding what it is I was doing. And instead of just practicing, everything I was doing was purposeful. And I think that's the main point. Is these guys were world-class coaches. And they were fairly good at the sport. But more importantly is their ability, their analytical ability to take the sport apart and to look at an athlete and go, like for me, for example, they're like, you should be doing more foot sweeps. And we want you to work this one particular one. And the freestyle team, because it was in the national training hall, does it better than we do. So you go down and you work with coach so-and-so for two weeks, and then you come back. And I want him to work you on this and this. So I would come back with that new skill set from the other grappling sport because you know rules kind of dictate technical preference sure anyway uh i just started reading and i would read and i would read and most of the reading people always want the big books there are no big books there's a few but mostly it's small essays done by you know think tanks and universities that have people that are working in this performance-based arena. It's become kind of vogue recently, but it's been being studied since right after the end of World War One, systematically. Okay. And so I just developed this methodology by doing what other people have done. And then once I got to a point where I understood the fire service, 
all I did was I took this methodology that I'd learned from world-class guys who were very giving with their information and the better part of 20 at that point, what was it, you know, 17 years, 15 years of study and application in my own, another entire arena. Right. And then I just started taking apart all these, these hoses, this engine lessons that I was learning and super imposing it on this methodology or more to the point, taking this method, these skills and applying the methodology over the top of the skills. So, in simple terms, we just have to understand that human behavior under stress, which is caused in acute moments by uh, by perceived chaos, how we're interpreting our world, and physical trauma. Those two things jack the heart rate. Those things drop endorphins, pro or, or bad endorphins. And bad endorphins for the fire department might be good for running from the lion. Right. So. Right. Uh, but so what we, we have to realize is that by coding our world and having an algorithm, if this, then this, if not, then this, these are the rules. Uh, we reduce that perceived chaos. And I don't have any way to code this other than some experience and some doing a few drills and kind of taking some numbers. Um, but. The greatest, we're going to assume a base level of fitness, the greatest impact on that acute chaos, that acute stress is perceived chaos. If I can reduce the, the distraction in the mind, then the body follows. And if your heart rate's down, you're not breathing as hard. You're not working as hard. The endorphins are dropping. You're making decisions. Decisions are feeding back into go or no go because you've been coded with this. So without all that in mind, what I my basic premise is, and it, it's pretty detailed, but is that your training life breaks down into three distinct phases. It breaks down into learning new skills and, and practicing old skills in isolation. It it breaks into adding those skills into many contexts and then it's drills or evolutions so the way to think of it is i my major source of of this and kind of one of the if you can say grandparents of skill acquisition and human performance is a bit's positive positive performance okay. okay i think it was written it's positive and they break things down into there's three distinct phases you have your uh Cognitive phase, learning new things, practicing old things. Your associative phase, putting those things into context. And then your autonomous phase, where you're just playing. So let's break it into, I'm going to show new techniques. We're going to refine new techniques because we're an offensive lineman. Right. Now we're going to run blue dog left on three. We're going to run that over and over and over again without opposition then with opposition and then the opposition's going to show a blitz off the weak side so now we're going to adjust to another skill that we've already practiced and then finally once in a while we scrimmage we can scrimmage in two ways we can scrimmage in let's go see what happens or we can scrimmage in i want you to run your your two minute offense against the nickel package right whatever you want to do so what I, I classify it as sandbox or evolution or sandbox and evolution and script. So 
the associative phase is a sandbox to play in. It's where do you put the boundaries on the box? But the sand, it's to get organized in whatever way is appropriate. So the other way to think of this, and to be not so technical, is you have a skill phase, a drill phase, and an evolution phase. And skill phases are the only place that you learn new skills. The worst thing that we do in fire training is we don't practice with a purpose. We put possible over probable. And we allow for these evolutions that we think we're going to start with to get waylaid because someone had one time in band camp or they didn't, but they thought they know someone nine towns over that had that one time. No, no, right? no. I so got to gotta back you up. The only point that you're learning, you there? No, no. I was saying back you up. We oh. don't practice with a purpose. We we focus on the possible over probable and, and go with number three again because I want to get my notes right. Yeah, we, we don't we, – we put new skill acquisition into the drill phase and the autonomous phase, right? So the, the associative and the autonomous, the drill and the evolution phase, nothing new should be learned there. You should already know all the requisite skills and understand how they fit. You only learn new things in that initial phase. In the skill phase. And in the skill phase. The skill phase. And right. that's it, which is in, in it's positive. It's called the cognitive phase. But so there's that aspect that I use. Um, I do the very much into po- probable over possible. And I believe in repetition. And I believe in purposeful repetition. So it's not just do it again, do it harder. It's do it. Uh, very frequently when someone has a mistake on one of our evolutions, what we tell them to do is do the same thing, fix this, and uh, slow down. Quit trying to move so quickly. Slow down. And don't uh, allow, if if you're struggling with something, it's not more energy, it's less energy until you know what you're supposed to do, and then the throttle goes back up. So there's those aspects. The other one that I think is really important from a teaching perspective, and this is subtle, um, and it isn't some nonsense PC uh, with people's feelings. I need to, and I need to know my skill material well enough that I can look at someone and go, "There's two things wrong," and thing number one is that, and thing number two is that. I'm going to fix one first. I'm not going to worry about two. I'm going to fix one. By the way, what you did really well on this was A. A. You did A very, very good. What I need you to do is fix one. You know how to fix it. Okay, let's do it again. Hey, you got one fixed. Now, here's one little other thing. Because I've prioritized the mistakes and prioritized the the positives, I can give people a la carte instruction. You can't eat. You don't taste everything when you're eating stew. You taste the stew. I want you to know that spinach is delicious and eggplant is delicious. Elk is delicious. And then once you know that those are delicious and how they're they're supposed to be, we can stick them back together. So I need to focus on the we call it fixing like a funnel. I fix the thing that's worst first, and then we just move down the list. Because usually if there's four things wrong, the tendency in the fire service is going, Instead of going, well, if we fix this and this, the other things will probably fall in. And that is 
most often true that someone struggling with something usually by the second fix it's it's clicked itself in because the reason the other mistakes were being made was the first two that were right. the worst the other part of this is that i need to emphasize those things that are done well because if i don't emphasize it it won't be passed on and it will become the term well it's just common sense right just common right. sense yeah, if it was totally. common sense it would be common would we be would just call it sense <laughs> right we wouldn't call it common right uh so uh you know we need to really be clear that if by by balancing the teeter-totter what we don't do is we don't beat people down people are vulnerable when they're tired they're vulnerable when their peers are looming over them so the first thing that you can do is like, yeah you messed that up we can fix that but by the way, you did that very well. So make sure you continue to do that. Now, five years from now, they have had a model ingrained on them with how to fix things. And they're reemphasizing things that is intuitive to them, to people that it's not intuitive to, because it's been articulated in coming back to language. Right on. No. Right? So those are the kind of the, the base, some, some of the most basic tenets that, of the things that we use. Um, there's also a component that is kind of interesting, and this is, like, I think, the first time I've ever really said this publicly, uh, but it's something that's, unfortunately, I had to give some thought to, not for me personally, but for some other folks that I know, is that, um, why are you teaching? Like, I, I've had people, I, mean, I don't know who it was, but there was somebody quoted and sent me something on the Facebook that was somebody said one time on Facebook that they want to be the next Aaron Fields. And at first I didn't even know how to take that. And I think I know how to take it. And I, and it's a compliment, but it's hard to take it that way because they have no, frankly, idea. They have no idea about the amount of work that goes into it, the, the effort, the, the, how do I balance those other responsibilities that are actually of more importance and and how do i make sure that i'm keeping things in check and what have i done and what have i had to do it the other part that they're missing is i've never wanted to do it i, I didn't start teaching because i wanted to teach i started teaching because somebody asked me and i developed this skill set for myself because that humble pie incident. Right. And I have never, and this is something that I'm proud of with regards to community that is involved with the Nozzle Forward is I've never advertised. I've never done one bit of advertising. I don't have a Facebook presence. I'm not continually filming myself doing whatever the hell I want and putting it on Facebook. I'm not continually having a diatribe. I keep my mouth shut except on the things that I'm, I'm good with. And that I'm comfortable talking about and having conversations about. I stay off that medium because I don't. It, it's vain. It's based around vanity, and that's not a trait that I want. <clears throat> and I view myself very much as a, a work in progress. <laughs> and the day that the phone quits ringing, I'll quit teaching. So. Because uh, I'm not teaching for me. I'm teaching because I feel like I have a responsibility to my community. 
And I think one of the things that happens as instructors is a lot of people, and and it's it's okay if to to have made this mistake as long as you're honest about it and you fix it. Which is, a lot of people want to instruct because they want their name in the lights. They want people to know who they are. They want that validation that they're into the job. Absolutely. And for and for me, it's. I don't need any of that. I'm a little, I mean, I joke about it, but I'm a little bit, not a little bit, I'm a hermit. I am, <laughs> I'm comfortable with nothing being said for two weeks at a time. It's fine. It, you know, I, I got hurt last year and I saw my kids. It was in, in the middle of the COVID thing. I saw my kids and my wife and that's it. I was at this cabin and didn't venture out because I didn't need to for weeks. Right. And was totally content. And so one of the things I think as an industry that we have to remember is uh, and Anchorage Fire says it the best that I've ever seen it said on their training. And I believe it comes from, uh, well, I know it comes from a captain up uh, at the university in Fairbanks. And, and, and it says, I'm not here for me. I'm here for we, and we are here for them. Right. And, I think a lot of inst- the instruction out there leans more to the me's and less to the we's. And it's not in how you say and what you say. It's in what you do. And the self-grandiosing and the self-posturing and the, the concern with what everyone else is doing and that you got to keep up with them. I don't keep up with anyone. I do my own thing. And the, guy, and the, the guys and gals that teach with me, we do our own thing. We are an independent community. And though we're friendly with other people and other people are doing great stuff, you know, I've been to Oz, I've seen behind the veil and some of the motivation comes from an internal need, which, you know, make no mistake about it. I do get satisfaction from the education part of it, but the satisfaction isn't in the recognition. The satisfaction is in the process. And I think that's one thing that instructors have to remember is, as your as your skill set increases and the gross motor skills of the fire service don't right so my refinement of things is way beyond what it needs to be and so what ends up happening is instructors because they're instructing at some level for themselves have to keep adding things subtracting things making new and that's fine because if it's growth but they they they're continually making things more complicated and more specific because they have to keep their own interests. Right. I'm not interested in teaching people to flow and move. I'm interested in giving people a skill set that they can then take and make fires better. Right. The actual, I've hit the point where the actual skills and the science behind what we're doing is important, but the medium of exchange is of greater importance. And what I take personal satisfaction in is that not in people recognizing me, but in people that I know and I've worked with and I've invested and they've invested in us. And it's this mutual exchange calling me up going, we got two saves within one week of you being here. Right on. I didn't fall through a hole. And, you know, I made this fire fields and it was just like we practiced. And through that film, and then we went out, and we were doing the evolution. Like, that's, for me now, the enjoyment of this process 
is in the process itself and the skill set is the medium that we use to go Achieve. through it yes but it, but but because of that we don't get more complicated go the other way we get simpler the class is much more articulate and coded today than it was 12 years ago okay because it's under constant refinement but not refinement to make it more difficult and tricky but to make it simpler and more effective at transmission wow so no, I, that was one of my questions yeah, i was going to throw it really you. important was how much has it evolved over the years and what's what's the change was so uh, you just answered that but go ahead con- considerably yeah i mean We've gotten way better. I mean, simply put, we've gotten way better at weighting the individual skills within the context of a fire. So when we first started, I, I made the assumption that that people were that I made the assumption that people had more information than me. And therefore they knew when these types of skills would be applied. And so we would show these skills and we often started with the things that were the most different from what they were doing and worked back. Now we teach things in a specific order and that order leads to a quicker mental articulate, cognitive articulation of what they're doing and why. And we're reemphasizing everything based off this probable versus possible. Most programs don't spend a lot of time prioritizing different techniques and we've gone as within our cadre of saying we don't teach techniques we teach principles nice nice right and because it's principle based it's more like a motor and less like well there was one time in band camp that i did this well there was another time i did this like, well what do you want me to do you know and why so no absolutely evolved. yeah it's evolved considerably um in in many ways personally um you know i don't even though I'm a hermit, I am an extrovert. I'm, I'm comfortable talking in front of people. And uh, I think I have, uh, this is, I've become more comfortable in when I'm out there being who I am versus I've never put on airs. I've never faked anything. But early on, we were pretty considered pretty counterculture. We were considered like out there and the and you know there was a lot of people kind of scratching their head looking at us and here's a guy that you know uh, makes references to music and art and fire class and (laughs) you know is sometimes jokingly flippant and and uh is just you know dancing to his own drummer for sure and um my mother likes to say at times you're just you're just weird you've always been a little weird that's good you know and and so Early on, it was it was almost like, yeah, you know, I, I I can I can show some of this, but I got to be, you know, I want to keep it super specific. And with the growth of this program and meeting a lot of people that are weird, I don't feel as alone as far as not being a firefighting stereotype and being okay being outside the parameters of what we culturally right identify with and i've realized that there's a lot more of those people than there are the other ones and um so my own personal development has been 
in big because I become more articulate expressing who I am. And, and because of that, I am comfortable treating each class like it's its last. It's, this is the last time we're doing it. So leave it all out there. And the, the beauty of what has happened is I've now got 18 people from around the country, all different demographics as far as human beings, but also fire departments, that is this like, I've got 18 people that I can call at any moment and be like, everyone says this, but but real. Like we have had real conversations because they're all weirdos too. Right on. And, and, and weird, weird is individual and individual is what we want. We right. want dynamic human beings that are looking to build a fabric of a community. And I've got 18 people for whatever reason that have glommed on and they are good human beings. And of everything that will happen with this program, that will be the thing that when I look back, I will be the proudest of, which is the people that I was able to do this with. And the community, like my wife and I talk about the nozzle forward and third person, it's its own thing. It's not me. It's not Nate. It's not Jordan. It's not Luan. It's not any of the other Maggie. It's none of the other folks that teach with us it's all of us and it's also everyone that's contributed i mean i have weekly conversations with people that have been through that i would have never met and that are friends and that's pretty goddamn cool it really is man. <laughs> you know it's it's it's, <clears throat> it's it's kind of astounding and i think that this community according to my moral compass is doing it the right way the right way no that's powerful man all right. Yeah. I'm going to hit you because I've got a few uh, questions. I, I've had a ton of questions, but one, sure, it's, there's a recurring theme here, and I'm sure you've heard it many times. And I know it is a, uh, it's probably the most common question actually that is, comes up on the scrap. So I want to get your take on it. And, and generally speaking, although it's been written here like four or five different ways, but generally speaking, I'm going to go with Beho, Ben Hopner. And he says, can you change the minds of older firefighters? in the manner of fire attack? And if yes, how? So basically in a nutshell, how do you implement change? Yes. Yeah. So yes. go you, for you, it. You never tell anyone they're wrong. Um, you offer perspective and you don't talk about fires in the thick. You have video and you show them those fires and you say, what would you do here? And you, you allow them to conversate, not tell them they're wrong. So there's a lieutenant that retired from the, the Seattle Fire Department, and he is he was recognized as kind of one of the engine OGs. Like he had been on the two busiest engines all of his career, and he did, you know, 40 years. And he and I on his last day had a really cool conversation was we talked about, I said, you know, one of my regrets is I never got to work with you. You know, remember when I asked about it and you said you were retiring in six months? Well, that was three years ago. He laughed and said, yeah, I thought I was, I thought I've been going for six months for years now. And he said, you know, one of the things I've appreciated is watching this program that you're doing. He's like, once I thought complete and utter bullshit. When I heard about this stuff, when we first started, I was like, what is this? Who is this? And then he's like, and then when we sat there at that meeting, remember that meeting and you and I were looking at those videos and we were talking? 
I realized that what you were saying in a different language was the thing that I'd learned from thing that the way I'd learned to fight fire from people that went down hallways without masks on. And I'm like, that's funny, Luke, because the people that originally showed me these skills were pre-SCBA. Right. And and he's like, yeah, you know, you're organizing it physically in a different way. And he's like, I'm not going to learn it. And frankly, I'm not interested in it. <laughs> but what I am interested in is that you've, you're showing old stuff and you're also saying it's old stuff. You're not saying you created it. You're telling me where you came from. You're giving me your bibliography. And by God, some of those people were my mentors too. And so once he got to the point that he understood what I was saying and how that ties in to what he was doing, he was a real big proponent of it. He didn't physically have to do it because it was not in his great, you know, it's not in his job description. His people were doing it, and he supported it once he understood it. And the only way you're going to understand it is to have those conversations. The worst thing people do is they come in and say, we've been doing it all wrong. No, we haven't. Right. Can we do it better, though? Right. Can we do it a better? And it is better wholesale change, or is better simply adding a couple new features, right? If, if you only have one choice, it's not an option. And fire service fighting, firefighting is, is option-based, algorithm-based, usually two or three options in any one moment. And you have to prioritize based off conditions. And so simple answer is yes. You, I've had good luck with it, but it again comes with explaining it. And if that means slowing down implementation so that your senior members understand it Hell and yes. know where to go, that's more important and getting your drill on the drill ground right away. People are in a big hurry because we're coded to do everything in a hurry. And in these conversations, they have to be long. They have to be continual. They have to be respectful. And you have to have an eye to the long game. And I think that is the success point. When you have those guys or gals that are just contrary, everyone has them. Most people are willing, once you're all talking the same language and you're showing a fire and going, at this point, what would you do? Would you turn the line off? And they're like, oh, no, no way. Like, yeah, that's what I'm saying, too. I agree with you. This is what we're calling it. This is why. Oh, so you're not telling me I'm wrong. No, not at all. I just want to get everybody on the same page. And your Fair. body of knowledge sure makes our collective body of knowledge stronger. Now, when you have those few individuals, there's a soup uh, that are just contrary right. and just arbitrary. You're not going to change their mind. So you have to be the consummate professional. You can't get angry. You can't throw a temper tantrum. You can't cuss and swear. You can't tell them they're wrong. Simply continue to do what it is you do. We cannot be defining ourselves on what everyone else does. We define ourselves on what it is we do. And so that long-term patience, and when you don't engage, the reason most people are so contrary is because they're, they're nervous. They're worried that they're going to look stupid. They've never been allowed to fail in drills. So the quickest way to pull the plug out of the, the, training, the training time is, is to sideline it with personal conflict. 
right so don't on. engage right on don't engage in it like yeah okay you don't want to do it that's fine you know if there's anything i can explain let me know um now that doesn't mean you have to take abuse and that doesn't mean that you can't have real adult conversations that have moved up the food chain with escalation right it just means you can't do it with emotion you have to do it professionally sir you will not speak to me like that ever again are we clear you and i can disagree we can have a conversation about it the minute you start talking to me like that we're going to have a problem because i'm a full-grown adult and so are you and we're both do give me the respect that i'm giving you right on um the other one the the play right when they're when they're digging in a lot of times they come a few times they'll come out of that humiliation phase and so like you can do the whole like, well, I know, you know, and all those fires you've had, I'm sure you, when you got really high, you just left the line on, right? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, now you have them. They just said in front of everyone, yeah, yeah, I know with all that experience, you were just, you're just in there killing me. I mean, you're a provincial badass. I can see it. It's on the back of your coat. You know, you're, you're, you, you exude that acidly. So you must have just kept it on because, you know, that that's the way that you put the fire out, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Now, oh, yeah, see, so we're saying the same thing. Right and on. They need to suck them in. <laughs> yeah, your, your language is a tool, and it can be used as a chisel, an awl, or a mallet. It's just you've got to be – you have to be in control of your tool set. And you right have on. to choose the appropriate response to the environment. So that's the way it works. And I, we've had fairly good success with it. It takes time, though. It's awesome. So we got the intro question. We got question one, which was teething methodology. And we got the first question from the audience, which was how do you implement change? I love it. All right. So I have my notes here. I'm going to pull my notes up and I'm going to throw it at the audience. Sure. I have never done this before. So audience and Aaron bear with me. Okay. It's like, um, what do you want to hear the most about moving forward? So guys pay attention as I ask you this question. There's a lot of you out there. So here we go. Well, we have, we're in no hurry. If, I know, I, but you, you, I, I, okay. depending on uh, we've gotten through three, so I just want to throw it yeah, at him yeah. and, and let's see how it goes. Uh, do you want to hear Aaron's thoughts on instructor one and two and certification in the fire service as well as train the trainer? What, why, when, and how the importance of the structure, um, the need for stress and training, psychomotor skills versus cognitive skills, practice like you play. Or the terms paramilitary and tactical athletes. What dis- what what discussion would you like to see the rabbit hole go down next? So hit me here in the comments, and we will see where it goes. Aaron, do you have a preference at this point? No, no, whatever. <laughs> You're pretty easy. Yeah, that's been said. <laughs> Benny, <laughs> I've gotten three responses so far. They're coming. I've got. And and no one okay. There's the first double. So I've got WWWH. There we go. Stress, stress, stress. Okay, we're definitely going to stress and training because that's like four or five or six. A couple with the yep. what win. So, right, so I ahead. can give you and these. We can get through a lot of these because these can be quick kind of bullet answers. Sure. They're not as they're not as philosophical, right? Um, so stress and training is critical, but what in what phase? We have to understand that, you know, if you have a, 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 an amp, a bass amp, one is different than nine. And we can't – well, here's one. The first premise is that the instructor or instructors 
cannot be the stressor. They set up the environment that, and then they can induce stress using other things, but they should not be the stressor because that makes the event personal. The cause, the leading cause of acute stress with regards to our senses is lack of sight followed by sound. So the easiest way to induce stress is to restrict sight in practice, sound, or to change the event. So you're going down a hallway, you're, you've turned a corner, you're making a room, it's a one-room fire, you're moving to it. And as you get to the room, the instructor goes, there's fire behind you. It's in the other room. You've missed. So right now you're like, what? And you turn and you make your roll. That jumps your heart rate. And that's not only coding you to re- to, re- to drop that heart rate, it's also coding you to react when you are going to miss a room. You're going right. to miss something at some point. Uh, the sight and sound are really easy. And with sound, I don't, one of the things that I've done, I haven't done it in a few years. I mean, I haven't done this experiment in a few years, but one of the things as an instructor that's really cool to do is lay out what an evolution is. There's no secrets. Put uh, some sort of boom box or whatever the recent digital equivalent of that is and play Metallica or Pantera or something noisy and, a, and, a, and, and not so nice. And watch people react and then put on uh, Marvin Gaye or Isaac Hayes or, you know, and Stevie Wonder and watch people react. So there's a really interesting phenomenon in that human beings are coded because we listen to our mama's heart to respond to the drum. The faster the drum. (laughs) So. One of the things that we can do to disassociate our audible from our heart rate is, is that we can train in an environment that is, that's pushing us to move faster and to pick up the pace and the pulse goes up. And when that, what you want to get to the point is when those folks are hearing Pantera, they're moving like Marvin. And yes. So that sound one is a big one. But again, the instructor isn't the deliverer of the stress. The instructor is the facilitator of the event. And because it's not personal now. And also the participants will feel like you're their advocate, not their enemy. Right. So changing the evolution, a burst hose line, uh, you've got to back out, which is something that most people say they'll do. They never actually practiced it which we know you're not going to do if you haven't actually coded it in the neural pathways, the mental roadmaps. So those kinds of things are the ways to introduce stress. Remove the vision, add live fire, you know, halfway through the evolution, give a radio report that there's a report of a trapped victim, those kinds of things. But base it off things that really happen, not, well, now a piece of chain link fence has fallen on top of you inside a building and you're pinned to the ground. What are you going to do? You know, well, this isn't a ceiling on me. Yes. 
you know, chain link fence held down by four firefighters, not so likely, right? So make the stressor and the event and or the conditions that the event is occurring. But we don't do stress-based training until someone has gone through a fair amount of the drill phase. So they should be good enough to complete the task. And that way, by adding the stress, they're raising their level. If you come in and chop their legs out underneath them with the stress and they don't succeed, you're coding them to non-success. What is also the paradigm of success? If a lot of times people won't have a great evolution, but I'll be like, that was great. I mean, I messed it up. I mean, no, you didn't. You almost fell over, almost lost control of your hose, but you kept your hose going and you had the room sealed off the whole time. That was fantastic. Or right on. You you can't make it. You've got to back out. The success is the, the is the is the purpose of the evolution, not just getting water into the room and completing the search. So change the 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 you know change the layout in the middle of an evolution after they've already gotten to the point that they can complete the evolution as it's written so stress shouldn't come in in the skill phase and should only start to come in into the point of drilling where they are seeing way more success in fluidity than they are not and that is a diagnostic and then once you hit evolution since evolution is actually scrimmaging uh or the, the you know the auto- the autonomous phase is actually scrimmage stress should come from being live right wow. so really stressing really only occurs in the drill phase and only in certain segments of the drill phase um we are trying to allow an environment in which failure is acceptable Yes. Because that is the yes. better part of learning. Yes. What is not acceptable is quitting. What is not acceptable is if it's not right, not doing it. And what's not acceptable is not being accountable for your own successes and failures. So that's when we stress, and that's how we stress. And it is super important that we don't <clears throat> add in um, – we don't add ourselves into the mix. I'm never yelling and screaming anything other than – they're killing this. Let's get going because now I'm an advocate. Right. There's another little instructor tweet in here that somebody just mentioned, and and it's something that we actually articulate in my teaching group, which is we never wear sunglasses. Hmm. Because trust is born from looking in someone else's eyes sunglasses separate my eyes from yours it puts a visual and metaphoric barrier between us and people say when i do it in the military drill sergeants don't go to war with their their boot right i mean it it's not for fire service instruction i have found that sunglasses get in the way and i have very light eyes there, I get a lot of sun headaches, but my comfort isn't more important than someone's. If 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 seeing somebody's eyes makes a connection, then by God, that's the whole point of the program. That's the whole point of the fire service to make connections, especially in a training capacity. So you know, it's interesting because someone that just did 
our class a little while ago noted they they noted and you know what i really appreciated none of your instructors ever wear sunglasses and i'm like yeah, you know this is why so that's another thing you know and and that's of course up to individuals and some people don't feel like it matters that much and that's up to them sure. I, my experience is it matters a lot so well, when you start getting uh, into kinesthetics and eye contact and communication and all that, yeah, I, I, I can completely see that. So, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to. No, you're right. So, I think that there's several. You know, one of the things is is instructors forget education, and, and the fire service is kind of bad with this, as a general rule. Education is not a fifty-fifty arrangement. Your marriage isn't a fifty-fifty arrangement. It's all in all the time from both people for a work. 50 50 is 100 divided by two people is a failing grade Damn. in order to be successful you have to commit completely to what it is you're doing whatever it is parenting marriage uh uh fighting uh you know what everything is is about complete commitment in the moment and so for me, I look at this thing as, and, and one of the things that I struggle with, right, is the fire service also likes to punish initiative. And this is a conversation we're having in our fire department with regards to new recruits, and it's getting way better. If, you, if I'm trying to get people to take initiative, but then I yell at them every time they don't do exactly what I would do, right. I'm not rewarding the initiative, I'm cutting down their ability to take it. Absolutely. So what we should be doing is encouraging initiative and altering the decisions that they're making by giving them the correct choice. Absolutely. But, you know, fail moving. And, Encourage and so the risk takers. Yes, exactly. And and so all of these things kind of come into play. And with that, what was done to me, some of it was great. Some of it was terrible. But that terrible isn't an excuse for me to do it too. Once I make that same error, then I am equally as culpable as the people that did it to me. And what people say is, oh, well, you know, that's how it was done. No, it's not. No, right. it's not. Because for every bad mentor I've had, I've had just as many good mentors or pretty close. And we as adults are supposed to make decisions that make things better. And when you're involved in education, and this is what I, I told uh, one of my training captains this recently because we were doing something. He and I get along. It was great. It wasn't at all. like. And I just said, yeah, you know, for me, my decision is to win. I'm going to go outside the lines a bit is who does it help? If it helps the person, I'm, my purpose in a training environment is to train. Anything that's not serving that purpose is secondary, tertiary, or not even making it to the map. So when I choose to, if I have to choose to push a, an evolution two minutes beyond the break time in order for this person to get it, it's going two minutes long because that's what this person needs, complete commitment in that moment. Right and on. so I think that we, we in the, as the fire service goes, we either say it's all about the student or it's all about you and they should conform to you. It's neither. It's equally both. Right. Both members have to be all in to get you need 200 percent. You're going to divide it by two. If you're going to divide it by two. I love that. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, uh, OK, 
I've got a there. Matt Wallace is the guy who came up with this. So I'm giving him props. All right. Now, if you are feeling adventurous, I'm going to throw this at you, Aaron, and you you have complete right to say no. I veto it. But basically, they're willing to run the clock. You're going to get three minutes per answer. I'm just going to do basically a lightning round with you on these questions. No problem. You go anywhere you want with it. So we got the clock ready. One thing to note, right? The one thing to note on this. Here's the caveat. Go ahead. Is that the reason I go long is because there will be no ambiguity. I I like it. I prefer to answer fewer and answer them completely than leave a bunch of stuff hanging. So sure, a three-minute sure. response, which I can do, Okay. Um, it, it just might not be totally do you complete. Do you want me to cut? You want me to give you the hard cutoff or, or just let you run? That's my question. I'll give it to you. Oh, we'll just run. We'll run, but I've got a clock here. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Yeah, Scott DeLong. Let him go long. Let him go long, please. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I like it. Okay, sorry. I'm going to pull up these questions. I don't remember which ones I asked. Okay. Uh, what is your thought on Instructor 1 and 2 and certification in the fire service? Uh, I think certification serves a role. I think what we have to do, it's not on the business side of the fire service to decide what it is that is important. It's up to us. We have to do the legwork. We have traditionally blamed the industry when we first should point at ourselves and say we have let this happen if we were personally and individually and department-wise better educated and more articulate at those things that we need and we want the industry would respond because we wouldn't buy nonsense so what i think we need to do i think we need to throw out instructor one and two because it is based upon cognitive skill acquisition and it's a morphing three or four different methodologies uh it's not consistent it's not coherent and uh it doesn't dive off into psychomotor very much we need to have certification processes but we need to make sure that those certification processes are articulate and what we need rather than allowing someone else to write our standards Boom. That was beautiful. I, I think that was like <laughs> under a minute. That was beautiful. I don't oh, think yeah. I, I, can, I can do the challenge. All right. Uh, I don't know if you can do this one. I, this is a challenge because this is what, why, when, how, the importance of this structure. Yep. In order to get buy-in, you have to have comprehension. You have to base your, your education model on a, a, a shared understanding of what was going on. So what are we doing? Why are we doing it? When would we do it? And now how would we do it? If you do whatever it is, tactics or technique or or instructor development in that way, then people mentally are dialed in with the direction that they're going and they understand how that color dot fits into the larger painting. Uh, so the how is none of them are more important than the other. What is important is it goes in that order because that order leads to cognitive and associative connections between the things that we're doing and the whys and wins. Beautiful. <laughs> it's important. It's, it's, it's the fundamental. It, if we deviate, it will work. It just won't work as quickly. It won't work as effectively. It won't work as thoroughly. That model is well uh, is well documented. It's just the diffusion of innovation and, and the ability to adapt to change or accept change. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Love it. There you go. Two for two. That's easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, this mm-hmm. is good. Um, 
practice like you play. Yeah, complete and utter bullshit. Um, that's nonsense. Uh, if you practice, if I practice like I competed, nobody would be there to practice with. You can't throw. I know what people mean with this, but this is a damaging statement. And most of the time when people get this statement thrown out, it's in the moment that they're trying to say, well, you know, I get you guys here. You know, you're doing all this stuff. That's fancy, but you're not doing it with packs. And I only do it with packs because that's how I'm going to do it. Like, okay, so when you played football, you went full speed, full contact every single down. You ran through stuff with gloves and helmets and shorts. More you didn't practice like you played more than you practiced like you played. In fact, practice like you play is only for the autonomous or the evolution phase of learning. Everything else should be PPE appropriate. And in our program, we have you do stuff without packs and then with packs. And, you know, I've got guys like this recently. I was in Michigan and I was teaching a class and one of the chiefs who was there observing and he wasn't, he's, you know, he knows everything. Just ask him. One of his comments was when I walked over to introduce myself was, oh, I see you guys are all uh, putting knee pads on. In my day, we didn't take the time to put knee pads on when we were going to do an evolution. And my response was, you also weren't on your knees for 14 hours straight. I need my knees for my life. So this is appropriate PPE, just like my jacket, gloves, and helmet. And he's like, oh, well, I'm like, yeah, what, and fires we don't wear, but we're only on our knees for – 30 seconds a minute not 14 hours chief and i said you're welcome to come in any one of these and try to do it without knee pads we'll see how that goes (laughs) (laughs) i can only it It was the end of this conversation right so practice like you play yes it's scrimmage but the rest of the time should be with varying levels of ppe that's escalating and up and escalating back to be appropriate to the setting and also to like you you do the technique without a pack and you throw the pack on. And some of our stuff actually is more difficult to do without packs than it is with packs. So it behooves them to learn without first because now they know how to fix it. So that is a nonsense saying, and it's not true. And it's not true in any other environment. So it's clearly not true here. And more often than not, I find it incredibly offensive because it's usually thrown out when someone is trying to derail a training session or explain why this training session isn't valid. Complete and utter nonsense. Anybody that thinks, you know, in my heyday, anybody that thinks they want to practice like they play, come try that at one of our practices, and you won't make it the two hours. Someone's going to get hurt. You're going to get beat up. You're not going to be too fatigued to, to learn anything. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a nonsense saying that we, we've all said at some point, right, but uh, we should just accept the fact that we shouldn't be saying it. Don't say it anymore. I love it, man. You're crushing this. This this might be, uh, yeah, uh, awesome. I'm going to throw this one at you, which is every fire is different. No, not true. Statistically not true. Um, 73% of the fires a few years ago in North America were 14 to 1,800 square feet, two bends on a one-story, two ben- uh, three bends on a two, one line and one and two rooms. Tell me again how they're all so different. There's only three angles in a building and three basic shapes of buildings, three types of stairs in some sort of combination. So really we're looking at more or less about nine variables So uh, that usually come with a right angle into a T or a T into a right angle. And when you hit the top of the stairs, you might do a 180 back to the 
bedroom, and that's the third angle. So they're not. There is differences in every fire, but most fires follow. I mean, if every fire is different, then there's no such thing as fire science, and there's no such thing as building codes. So once you can articulate the playing field and what the opponent is going to do, now you start to see that there are patterns, there are trends. One of the guys that's in, that teaches with us, uh, a guy named Jordan Legan, is doing his master's degree in architecture. And there's, I forget the name of the professor, but there's a professor that has a book out there that lays out every basic building st- style of single-family dwelling based off era. And I can get you that information. It's a great book, and it, it proves our point. So by saying every fire is different, we code people to expect chaos. Right. By saying fires are more similar than they are different, we are coding people to look for patterns and recognize and articulate the variables. Because there are differences. And those differences uh, we need to be able to talk about. But the only way we talk about them is we don't talk about everything. Because we know the rules. So, um yeah, no, it, that's not true either. They're more alike than they are different. Boom. I'm loving it. Last one, and then I'm going to get into books, okay? Because I've, I've eaten mm-hmm. up so much of your time, but I love it. But it's in order to call an audible, <clears throat> you have to know the play, which kind of goes right into what you were just talking about. So go for Absolutely. it. Absolutely. What, what I want to hear, and my fire department, I mean, for full transparency, is struggling with this right now. Um, it's... It's we're moving in a really good direction, but there is some some verbal silliness um, in that what I want to hear is what do you have? What are you doing? What do you need? It's done or oops. That's it. Oops. Oh, shit. We went in the wrong door. <laughs> you know, okay. Oh, we thought we were going to do an inch and three quarters of the front door. It's a two and a half to the seaside because the whole third floor is going. You know, whatever. Right. So, um, yeah, I think that we have gotten and 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 if you have standard operating guidelines in place, then you shouldn't have to articulate that they're in place. Right. What you should articulate is if we know we're going to run blue dog left on this type of building. When we show up, unless we say otherwise, it's blue dog left. The only thing we should be talking about is our variables. That clears up radio space, and that allows people to think about what they're supposed to be doing as they arrive. Love it. So, um, yeah, you, 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 you have to operate from a common disposition, technically and tactically. And if you do that, then... You remove some of that chaos, and now what you can start to talk about is only the things that are not standard. If I expect the nose guard to be there, I don't need to tell you the nose guard's there. Right. I need to tell you when he's not there, right. and that's, that's it. So, and also, you know, and one of my frustrations is is, is, is that I, with our own agency, is we're going in the right direction. It's just that we're going there and we're having we're, we're we're not confident that we're moving there. And so we're asking people to talk a whole lot more than they should be, because the reason we're going in this direction is to reduce the radio traffic so that the important stuff can get out. I mean, I've been in a room where I made the fire room and was trying to get out and people are on the outside talking about where the goddamn decon line is. <laughs> People are still treating this like the fire, you know, they don't know the fire's out because I haven't been able to get out 
because everybody's telling you exactly what they're doing. Hey, more. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go down the building. I have a hose on my shoulder. I'm going to deploy the hose to the front door. Then I'm going to go like this and call for water or like this if they can't see me. Like, you don't need to narrate all that shit. We got it figured out. Right, right this, on. Is, this is a play. <laughs> and, and, and we don't need to go through. And then I, and then this is what I did. And then it said. And then I, yeah. And so we end up on the radio so much that we can't get out the important stuff. And because it drones on, human nature, not me, though I fall into it, human nature is to block it out. Full transparency. Yeah. No, you're, you're not. I've turned yeah. my radio down completely in, in fires. There's so much chitter-chatter, and I'm trying to talk, and everyone on the outside is talking about things that are tertiary needs. And they're on the radio because they want the radio stamp. And I just turn my radio down. And, and I don't I haven't done it recently, but in the past, I'd get frustrated and just turn it down so that I think, you know. And then when I'm trying to get out and getting bonked over and over again, um, it, you know, and again, I'm, I'm complaining in a way, but I'm offering solutions. Uh, and we, and for the, for full transparency, again, we are moving in the right direction. It is just the the steps are the steps have been a little cumbersome. Absolutely, love that. Yeah. Perfect, man. All right, I always like to ask the guest if there are book or books that they think firefighters should be reading. Oh. Yeah, I mean, um, I think there's a lot of great information out there. What I would argue that people should do is they should use a bibliography. Too often they go on YouTube or Facebook, excuse me, or, or Google, and they type in some subject matter, and 15 books pop up. Okay. All of those books are new. All those books are glossy. All those books have sources. Go to the sources. Go to the source. Go to the source like and it. do real research. Things that I, you know, I read regularly is I read the Fitz Posner model, human performance. I read that fairly regularly. I read a lot of stuff by a guy named Don Drager, who was a Marine Corps um, captain. I read uh, most of the Marine Corps that, you know, uh, they're – their documents that they have, they have a new one on training, they, you know, war fighting, all these things that are kind of tactical treaties. I read those uh, and I read them every couple of years just to try to pick up new stuff. I find solace in um, history books and knowing the history because it makes me feel like I'm not original and I'm not new and I'm not special. And okay. I take a certain degree of, I mean, it's weird. I take pride in not letting my ego get ahead of myself, which is kind of an oxymoron. But, and I feel like when I read a history book, what it does is it connects me to what's happened ahead of me, which I'm directly connect. You know, why I'm doing what I'm doing is because of some of these things. And I think that there's, a certain power in realizing that as human beings, there's nothing that we're going to do, think, say that is completely 100% original. Right on. We are, it might be new and original to us, but it's not in the scope of our species. And I think there's a comfort in that because I believe it gives us the key to figure out what our tendencies are and to be better human beings because we can evaluate our behaviors because they're objective with that in mind 
I think the most unstoic thing that we can do is quote stoic philosophy on Facebook. It's the opposite. But um, I am a big fan of classical thought. Marcus Aurelius, Zeno, the cynics. Uh, and I read um, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius for the first time when I was 11 or 12. My parents gave me, I was, we were talking about something and they gave me, uh, I don't, it wasn't the full book. It was just a section of it, you know, and, and I read it and it changed me. Like, and so I read meditations by Marcus Aurelius once every three years or so. Um, and I am a big fan of a lot of those, yeah, stoic and cynic treaties. Um, there's also a, a Chinese philosopher named Munches, who I, I do a fair amount of reading on. I I think there's a, you know, one of the things that, that I firmly believe is that the difference between a philosopher and a philosophy student is the philosophy student is looking for the argument and the philosopher is looking for the truth. Nice. And I really dig thought. I think that that brain of ours is an under weightlifted tool. So I also try to break down the membranes in life compartments. Who I am is a, you know, one, one thing that I kind of stand by is that the way that I do the nozzle forward, is the same way that I do parenting. It's the same way I do training. It's the same way I do as a husband. It is a manifestation of my methodology that I use in everything that's important to me. Uh, My wife and I, you know, we, we, you know, I'm pretty well quoted is, you know, we don't watch television. We don't do any of that. We never have, never had cable. That's not true. I had cable for six months and never turned it on when I was like 22. So um, I'm not distracted. And I really try to focus on, like in this interview, the same thing. is I try to focus on what's in front of me, and I leave appropriate time to do it to the level that it should be done to, or the agreed-upon level. And I think that one of the things that we do in the fire service that's mistaken is we somehow think the fire service is free of our mundane human aspects and it isn't it is part of it and so um you've you know your 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 gift of time is is fleeting and i what i fear not completing the things that i've set out to do and in order to do those things well which is what i'm i take personal status not the best it'll never be the best but well um i have to be you have to be in the moment and all of those kinds of things, you know, I used to catch a lot of crap as a young guy for reading those kinds of things. You're reading what? Oh, those are dudes <laughs> were dead thousands of years ago. Right. And I'm like, exactly. And it's still relevant today. Right. You know? So, um, you know, those kinds of books. And then on the website, my website has a bibliography uh, for fire stuff. It's not complete. But it definitely gets you started. Absolutely. Uh, but I think that, you know, a lot of the things that, you know, one of my intellectual mentors was Andy Fredericks. And he, I had made the decision that I was going to go to one of his classes before 9-11, but 
uh, clearly I didn't get a chance to. And, um, you know, it's, it's, so I think that those writings, those writings helped me balance out the, some of the miss lessons that I'd learned. And so that, I think that's a good place to start. I don't think we should, the other thing is I don't think we should in, in, imitate. I think we should assimilate. Meaning I don't need people to do things exactly the way I do. What I want them to do is take the toolbox that I have and figure out how to use it. Right. And with that, the other statement that you alluded to before we came on was another bad statement that firefighters make another tool in the toolbox. toolbox. That's terrible. That's terrible. A good carpenter, a good welder doesn't need a thousand tools. They know how to use the ones they have and they're well used and their, their skill is their ability to adapt this core set of tools into infinite setting. You cannot prepare for every possibility. So your, your situation is going to dictate which tool you use and how you use it. And people that are good with it can use it in many ways. We don't add new tools to the toolbox very often. We add new understanding of how to use those basic tools. And at a certain point, you add in too many levels of complexity. And since nothing that you've, no tool that you've put in is hinged and connected to a context, it can only be used as a mimic. You mimic the, the scenario that you learned it in is the scenario you're going to use it in. And I'm going to get another tool for another scenario. That is fundamentally flawed. If that was the case, then Olympic wrestlers wouldn't basically have three to five, if they're really good, but most of the time, three techniques that they're funneling every action towards. Towards, They would respond with whatever. That's not the way it works, right? It's especially in acutely stressful environments. So tool in the toolbox, yes, but... More importantly, is teach people how to use the tool, not just keep shoving stuff in the toolbox that you never even open up because you don't know what you're looking for. Absolutely. Dude, I love it. Uh, I feel like we're scratching the surface. Uh, But um, thank you. Uh, I always love – we have a thing we do here called the five questions for firefighters. So what it is is there are five questions – the answers are completely your opinion. There is no right or wrong, and the points are arbitrarily assigned by myself. So, Aaron Fields, are you okay. ready? Before you do these, does okay. anybody in the in the chat have – is there any common question, like one overriding? Or if not, then people can contact me individually. I'm looking. I mean, you. I think you've hit a lot, especially with the rapid fire okay, you did. Good. The rapid fire you did, I think, covered a lot. Uh, okay, great. I'm sure now that you opened it up, there may be like 50 flying at you, but I'm going to hit you with the five. Yeah, that's all right. Directly. <laughs> I know everybody out there, I'm sure. So, yeah. People... <laughs> Absolutely. All okay, right. Go for it. All right. Here we go. Question number one of the five questions for firefighters is what is the number one issue facing the modern fire service? The number one issue facing the fire service is the same thing that's faced us for quite some time, which is, again, it's going to come back to, without a language, we're going to keep running through these tracks over and over and over and over again. We need to look at codifying, at least for our own departments, what language we're going to use, a jargon, and we need to take control 
over our certification and our de development of credibility for particular subjects. We need to take it over. We, we need to not let people that not do it speculate. Mm. You know, we don't need gear manufacturers uh, deciding what we should and have to have. Right. There's a conflict of interest there. Absolutely. We should be telling them what we need and they should be responding to that environment. We should get business out of our tactics and our techniques. Love it. Get business out of our tactics. And it comes from having a language. And if we could speak articulately, people would respond. But, you know, we we just we're not so we're not so articulate. So with, with our technical needs. So that I think that's. That's a big thing. The language and the taking back our certification and our credibility process. Love it. Number two, what is the thing you are most excited about for the future of firefighting? Same thing I'm excited about for the history of it, the people. Um, the greatest asset that any – this is this is like almost a soundbite, and I apologize, but I truly believe it. It's the greatest asset that we have is people. Absolutely. People is the, are the only thing that if – handled appropriately are worth more on the fire ground than when they first were hired as time if, if handled appropriately and given the context in which to operate towards excellence uh they are our greatest asset and they are even when we're not in those environments and it's proof in that our line of duty deaths is really really low comparatively to other industries like ridiculously low right on and uh and, and i'm not taking one i have friends that haven't made it out so that's not right i'm not belittling it what i'm saying is is that we've got to look at it without that that twist of emotion involved and go man we do a pretty good job we do a pretty good job despite all the inconsistencies which means it's the people that are doing it the nozzles don't put the fire out Absolutely. the nozzle person puts the fire out so love people it. love it Great answer. Well articulated. Thanks. Number three, the best rank or position to be in in the fire service. <laughs> well, that's I, I can't answer uh, in that I've only been in one. And um, I'm in a couple of processes. Uh, who knows where things are going to go? But um, I think for me, it's always been on the back. But everything uh but as you progress different things change and the fire department and the fire industry has needs and if the needs is something that it's asking you to do then you have to do it right. and um and and you know you, well you don't have to but morally i feel like you should and so uh i think the key is that wherever you're at it, nothing is permanent and if you don't like what you put yourself into then pull yourself back from it and find something that you do like and if the fire service is done appropriately i think the best rank is the is the rank that you're currently in mm. if you went there because it was something that was drawing you not because we're supposed to move up this food chain but because you've got a, a, a connection with this next thing whatever it is absolutely Love it. So I don't know if there is a good one. Number four. I can say that the oh, worst sorry. one is probably doing inspections. But 
that's just me personally. <laughs> like, <laughs> like doing standpipe inspections, you're like, oh my god, this right? Is, that wouldn't be so awesome. But uh, for some people, it is. For me, it wouldn't be. But <laughs> I like it. Uh, number four, best advice you have ever received. Mm. Uh, my parents. Okay, I'm going to give this in several different contexts. My parents, both of them used to say, boy, act like you got some sense and you've been there before. When I won, when I lost, everything else. That was good advice. My grandfather told me, and he was, uh, he told me that you judge the merit of a human being by the number of calluses on their hands. And that was he literally was talking about blue collar stuff, but he was also talking about more important was work, work ethic, work ethic was, was, was the determiner of it for, for was the determiner of character. So that was pretty good. Um, fire service wise, it was, I think, the thing that was the impetus for all this was I spoke with her fairly recently, uh, but a lieutenant that retired from Seattle, and she says she doesn't remember this. She remembers the connection, but not the saying, but I remember it very clearly. And uh, her name's Meg Jones. And the Seattle Fire Department is a worse place without Meg Jones there. When she retired, a giant legacy left our agency. And she's doing really well, and she earned it and all those things. But when I was going through the, the the state academy, I was with another fire department. I worked there for five or six years and then came to Seattle. And she pulled me aside. She used to work with my old man. And um, she pulled me aside, and she gave me the what, war, what, and why was I not working for Seattle? And I just said, I haven't gotten through the testing process. This is the first job I got offered. And she said, okay, well, you keep testing and you tell me that you've tested because you should be with us. Yes, ma'am. And then she said, I want you to hear me on this because she was a contractor for the state. She wasn't full-time staff up there. She says, don't believe all this bullshit they're telling you. Real buildings burn. They become part of the problem. And that's when things change. Damn. And I was like, okay. And I heard her, but I didn't understand her. Right. But because I heard her and I made that mental note a couple months later, when I had that that humble pie served to me, I came out and I was like, yes, I understand what she was saying now. Right. I got to find the solution. So Meg, uh, or excuse me, Lieutenant Jones, uh, it was uh, instrumental in my development and was really good pals with my father and worked at the same station and became a lieutenant in a neighboring station. So that was, uh, you know, she deflects, but all those people out there that don't like me have heard of things. (laughs) Right on. Yeah. Final question. You have. Hold on. Let me stop that. No. Yeah, final question. Go for it. All right. You have heavy fire and searchable space. Would you rather be assigned to the nozzle or first in on VES? 
Come on, man. This isn't even a question. Yeah, talking to the nozzle forward guy. Are you kidding me? Does 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 VES require me to walk up that stick with little sticks between it? We Generally it speaking, yeah, I get it. it. I, it took me a second okay, to sir, decipher. Today. Can you put can you put the fire out with an axe, a ladder, a hook? No, you can't. So uh, for me personally, it is without a doubt nozzle. Fair enough. Like there's that's the solution right there. Everybody else. <laughs> like, I like to say that trucks really are just butlers. They clean up after we're done and open the door so we can go in. No, that in all honesty, there is a real art to VES. I have some pals that are really good at it, really good truck guys and gals, and they're 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 dynamite. Um but it's not my jam. I mean I can do it. I understand it. You know, I can throw a ladder and climb up them at a professional level. And it's something that I do practice. Don't tell anybody it ruins my cred. But, uh, but at the end of the day, when I signed up for this job, I envisioned myself going down a hallway with fire all around me, with somebody behind me, blowing water down the hallway, watching it go out. And that's that's where I like to be. That's and that's so that yes, I feel like you need to come up with another question because that one is almost no. Well, <laughs> normally I'm not talking to the creator of Nozzle Forward when I ask that right, question, right, so right. it's yeah. it's it's yeah. more. It's a... <laughs> no, it's a great answer, and yeah. I honestly wondered what how, how you would handle the the uh, the proverbial it's been asked like like 70 times and and that was the most uh might be the most passionate answer i've been yeah yeah no it's um you know i've been on searches uh you know i'm going to say this publicly but in my first life before seattle i was actually assigned to a (laughs) truck for about a year and a half and i worked with really good people and I had a good time, but I just the engine the engine was my jam, and it, it's been my jam. As a trainer, uh, it's not my skill set; it's not my specialty. Uh, so what I like to do with that is I've helped a lot of truck folks design a meta methodology for their skills. So the other thing that I do a fair amount of is you know, going in and working with people in groups on instructor development, curriculum design, drill design, the principles, and I kind of help them with the blueprints that they can then stick whatever their discipline is into right on, and right modify on. as appropriate. So I do a lot of that too. Absolutely. Because all these principles that you've done, well, yeah, we could go to another hour talking about the principles as they apply to things besides the nozzle. So um, yep. there it is, the five questions according to Aaron Fields. Uh, thank you, sir, for participating. I really do appreciate it. Uh, no problem. Thanks for asking me. All the people. This, I, was, this was a fun one. I, I enjoyed it, man, immensely. I, to everybody, I do want to apologize. There were so many comments and questions that I personally could not keep up. So, Aaron, I put that on you. That's your fault. But That's okay. <laughs> uh, you can tell them how to get a hold of you, the best way to reach you, if they have questions or things like that. Yeah. I mean, if you if you go to the – well, you could – Email is the best way. If you have my phone number, you know that um, you can call me. 
you can email me and I'll send you my number because I much prefer to talk than send back text messages and as you know and uh, and emails but uh, so you can go to the website and, and there's a link there for that because if I spit out numbers and names and stuff like that but uh, it won't get caught but the other thing is is uh, people that don't know me need to know that there is a there is a process as far as two times a week at least i am not accessible except by phone i don't respond to text messages i don't look at them i don't look at my emails two days a week uh because you've you've got to be in control of it not it controlling you so if it takes me a couple of days to get back to you uh if it's more than a couple of days send it again it may have got caught in my spam filter or something like that but i will get back to them awesome maybe a few there it is uh aaron fields brother this has been uh one of the my most enjoyable scraps i have done out of the 89 scraps that have happened oh. uh oh thanks man i appreciate it i think we set, I told you it was going to be different <laughs> i'm not sure if we set the time record or not for times for uh, i know we did this we set the uh amount of time set talking for the number of questions covered so it was really really well done sir yeah. But for what that's worth. Uh, Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Good, good, good questions. Yeah, no, and the audience was amazing. Thank you guys for putting up with uh, me trying to read your questions and get them out there. Uh, Aaron, unbelievable guest. I hope uh, that you will come back and be a guest again because I feel like we just barely scratched the surface of every, everything everybody wants to know and hear for you talk about. So, uh, yeah, thank you, sir, for being yeah, a guest. Yeah, of course. Just, you know, send me an email. We'll, we'll set out a time or give me a call because you have my number and we can figure something out. I'd be happy to do it again. I, you know, one of the things that is pretty cool, uh, is that when these, when I first did these, it was typically stuff that people wanted affirmation that they were making the right equipment choice, or, you know, there was a, a lot of technical specific information, which is, which is great because those conversations need to be had. But, recently a few in this one for sure has asked questions that i feel like are in, important at least they're important to me and i so i appreciate the fact that people aren't just and you did not just write down the first five things that came to your mind you did a little research you knew what you wanted to what where my disposition was and you wanted to dive into that so i I appreciate that because it doesn't feel, it feels like a conversation between two people, not an interrogation. <laughs> so, I hope, I hope I never was, come across it. Was, it. it was Thank well you, man. done, man. Really well done. I take that as a huge compliment. So all I can say, I'm terrible at taking compliments. So I just say, thank you. And, uh, uh yeah, yeah. And, uh, and thank you everybody that chimed in, took the time to post comments and thank you, Aaron Fields for being the guest on number 89. Uh, thanks audience i hope the tone stays silent unless it's burning you guys stay safe out there thanks for listening to the weekly scrap please subscribe and please share we'll see you at the next episode